Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. On today's episode, we soar to the highest heavens, reach back into the deepest of time, pretend that things are what they aren't, using science that isn't science, and then we come hurtling back toward Earth where we find out the connection between touching our mouths and surviving certain annihilation. In recent days, scientists have not only proven the Big Bang, but also that aliens exist, and that there is something even worse than enduring a nuclear explosion. (laughs) Oh yes, it's all true, because it's all science. So grab whatever matter matters to you the most, have your... Machine ready? Download this podcast because you probably don't have a great internet signal in your bomb shelter. Because three, two, one, here we go. Some of the most illogical and unscientific stuff, I know, real scientific word, it comes from the magical land of science itself. From thejournal.ie headline, Scientists Unveil Most Accurate Virtual Representation of the Universe. A global team of scientists and researchers led by the University of Helsinki created what they described as the, quote, largest and most accurate computer simulation to date concerning our little corner of the universe. Using a supercomputer, which was really thousands of computers around the world working together, this project simulated more than 130 billion particles for several weeks to create the model. In doing so, they created more than one petabyte of data. Now, one petabyte is equal to one million gigabytes, or 1,000 terabytes. To give you an idea, one petabyte is enough storage space to store the uncut IMAX 3D version of the second movie in the Hobbit series nearly 1,600 times. That's a lot of data. And this little project created more than that. And I'll just bet that these same scientists are worried about the global impact of the required energy usage of mining Bitcoin with your computer. Mm-hmm. So the scientists use data from their definition and theory of the Big Bang on one end of the model, our current corner of the universe, including star systems and galaxies that we're most familiar with on the other end of the model, and all of their assumptions about how they believe things work and worked between those two points in the model. By doing so, the computer simulated the entire evolution of this cosmos, centered about the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies. Okay, so I've covered the idea of models and simulations in previous episodes, so I don't want to rehash all that. But the bottom line is that a model is only as good as the modeler. In other words, it's garbage in, garbage out. In order to build an accurate simulation of anything, you must input correct, unbiased data. Unfortunately for these scientists, there is literally no way they can have an accurate model. And this is regardless of if you believe in young Earth creation or the Big Bang a bazillion years ago. 
In fact, the scientists made this probably the most confusing statement, uh, at least as written by the author, quote, during their research, the scientists found that our local patch of the universe may be unusual as the simulation predicted a lower number of galaxies than found in an average region of the universe due to a local large scale under density of dark matter. Okay. I had to take a minute to break down what this was actually trying to say. What they're finding with even their simulation, where they put in the beginning points and the ending points and all the assumptions that have been developed over the years about how the universe magically, naturally came to be, is that it doesn't work. They said that the model predicted fewer galaxies in our region than what we actually have. And why? because we apparently have a large imbalance of dark matter. We don't have as much in our area as the model predicts. What this should tell the scientists is that their theory somewhere has a problem. I mean, that's a simple conclusion. Back in my engineering classes, we had problems that would take two, three, or more pages of calculations and diagrams, and if my answer came out wrong at the end, I wasn't able to tell the professor that my answer must be an unusual answer. No, my theory, my calculations were wrong, at least in one place, and usually many places. I mean, based on my school career, it's amazing I can even manage to put gas in the car. One of the scientists involved in this project was quoted as saying, It is immensely exciting to see the familiar structures that we know exist around us emerge from a computer calculation. Well, it's it's probably a pretty cool model to watch, but, I mean, exciting? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, they told it where to start, and they told it where to end, and they told it all the assumptions that they assumed they have correct. What else would the model do? He went on to say that the model and their theories, quote, tells us that we are on the right track to understand the evolution of the entire universe. <laughs> Whoa! That's a bold statement. A 13.7 billion year old, by their theory, chemical reaction starting as nothing, exploding into everything, and then creating from non-life, all life, and from non-intelligence, homo sapien sapien, and we're just about there? We just about have it all figured out? Oh, well, hey, problem solved then. These scientists are high-fiving themselves because the model they created with the assumptions they assume, did what they expected it to do. Shocker. So what is this dark matter? Well, apparently there are a few different theoretical or, or, or actual types of matter. There's matter that we all think of. We're all matter. We're actual stuff. Our planet is made of stuff. Plants are made of stuff. The sun is stuff. Humans are stuff. Your stuff is stuff. All of that is matter. Then there's antimatter and dark matter and degenerate matter you want to stay away from degenerate matter. You don't want to run with that crowd, bunch of troublemakers. Quickly, before we get to dark matter, the science has a problem with antimatter also. In theory, at the Big Bang, equal amounts of matter and antimatter should have been created. When particles of the two come in contact, they cancel each other and destroy each other and result in a release of energy. So if the Big Bang should have created equal amounts, how can we have so much real matter all over the place? What happened to all of the antimatter? All we should have is a massive space filled with energy. According to the CERN website, although the universe should only have energy, quote, a tiny portion of matter, about one particle per billion, managed to survive. This is what we see today. 
Now, they go on to say that it's because the laws of nature don't work the same on matter and antimatter, but they don't know why. Now, see, this is not science. This is fantasy. They have a theory. Their theory doesn't work, so they double down on the theory and say, but it must work somehow. At this point, let me point out that evolutionary science jumps into and out of laws of nature as needed for their theories. The Big Bang violates every single law of physics, so the scientific theory is that those laws didn't apply until, you know, some teeny tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. You know, then they kicked in. Well, why? Or more accurately, why not? Why did they not work until then? Then they use a theory of uniformitarianism, a $100 word that simply means that the way everything works today is exactly how everything has always worked. But they have to ignore that when they find planets and galaxies spinning in the opposite direction of most everything else, as the Big Bang Theory would result in everything rotating in one direction, that they have to dump natural law. Or when you look at the principles of gravitational attraction, as according to their timeline, our moon at one point had to have been rolling around on the surface of the Earth and slowly moved into the current position, if gravitational attraction works the way we know it works. Bottom line, they use actual scientific principles until it doesn't work in their theory. And then we have a you know, an unusual event or a, a point where natural law didn't apply. As the church lady says, how convenient. Now, moving on, degenerate matter is basically matter that's been compressed by such an intense gravitational force that the atoms break down and everything is mashed together. This is the theory behind a neutron star. This is mostly theoretical. They claim some alleged knowns. The theory appears to break down into questioning how far matter or atoms can be smashed. Finally, what about dark matter? Well, it's something that apparently can't be seen, but has a very slight gravitational effect. Nothing like real matter, though. According to WTAMU.edu, which is West Texas A&M University, dark matter is common in our universe and helps to shape the galaxies and, quote, recent estimates put dark matter as five times more common than regular matter in our universe. Um, but we can't see it, and we, uh, we, we can't touch it or, or use it or do anything with it or apparently even prove it. That site then wraps up the description with, quote, dark matter is not predicted or explained by standard particle physics theories, but is a crucial part of the Big Bang model. So let me break this down for you. According to the unbreakable laws of physics, dark matter doesn't and can't exist, but we've got to have it exist because if we don't, the Big Bang Theory falls apart. Again, I say, if your theory doesn't work, get a new theory. But don't worry, just recently, like in the last few days, literally, scientists have apparently figured it out. According to Princeton.com, they said that, quote, when tiny galaxies collide with bigger ones, the bigger galaxies can strip the smaller galaxies of their dark matter, matter that we can't see directly, but which astrophysicists think must exist because without its gravitational effects, they couldn't explain things like the motions of a galaxy's stars. End quote. That was the entire quote. Um, I, what? So because the theory of the Big Bang is so bad, we have to make up something to explain how things work, but we have no idea how what we made up works, so we have to develop unprovable, untestable theories as to how it could maybe work. Is anyone else seeing a pattern here? 
Let me point out, though, one other thing. The theory of the Big Bang is that everything in the universe, all matter, all types of matter, squeezed together into a space that basically was nothing. It spun faster and faster, got hotter and hotter, and then it exploded, slinging all of this matter into the universe, into what we see today. Problem is, conservation of angular momentum and the principles of an explosion tell us that everything that spun off needs to spin in the same direction, like I said a few minutes ago, and nothing collides. Everything moves away from each other. The closest they ever were is during the big squeeze right before it exploded. So galaxies, per the Big Bang Theory, can't collide. Ever. This is all just so terrible. The entire theory of stellar evolution is basically a fairy tale. Nothing actually works. And so when you put in your starting and ending points and all your assumptions as to how things work, the model should predict exactly what you want it to. And even this model doesn't work. This should make these scientists question their theory, but it doesn't, and it won't. If this theory doesn't exist, there's only one other option, a higher power, a god, if you will, and they cannot have that be true. Now, Quickly, I mentioned that there's no way to accurately model the evolution theory from the very beginning, the Big Bang, and there's no way to model the creation theory, God, from the very beginning. In the creation theory, God miraculously created everything. We don't know how. We don't know when he set the laws of physics in motion exactly, but we can't model a miracle as that steps outside the bounds of what's known. Now, after day six, we can easily model our system. We can use the principle of uniformitarianism to easily work our way back 6,000 years ago to see how close the moon was, where the stars, constellations, and planets were, etc., etc. So in both cases, the starting of the theory is not able to be modeled. But in one case, we have an intelligence doing the work a short time ago, which fits what we see today, including the amount of regular dark anti and degenerate matter as God can set the system up however he chooses. While in the other theory, we have to keep stepping in and out of natural laws, in and out of uniformitarianism, make up theories to try to justify other theories, and believe things that are borderline or all-out insane, like all matter in the known universe being compressed into something so small as basically nothing, in order to make the theory work. As for the motion of the stars, science says that we must have a lot of dark matter out there because how else do you explain the motion of the stars? Well, the Bible tells us that God created the stars also during those six days of creation and that he knows each one by name. They move the way they move because God set them in motion and 6,000 years is a tiny amount of time for this system to continue to work as designed. Can I prove that God exists? Well, not in the way that scientists would like me to. But I can prove that starting with God, all known laws, all systems, everything works. We can actually predict, test, and prove theories. For as crazy as the idea of an all-powerful, invisible sky god sounds, in my tiny human brain, it sure seems to make an infinitely larger amount of logical sense than what they're serving up, no matter what their tainted model predicts. They can do what they like. They can model what they want. They can theorize however they want. I believe in science, so I'm sticking with God. What would your reaction be? What would you think if you turned on the TV or opened your favorite browser or got an alert on your phone that extraterrestrial life was found, was verified, and here is the indisputable proof.
The way you react would likely be determined based first on which of the two major worldviews you subscribe to, Christian or non-Christian. I'm going to speculate here, but I guess that if you were a non-Christian, you'd likely think it's about time. And then you'd have one of two, or, or maybe both reactions, excitement or fear. And as silly as this may sound, that reaction is likely dependent on if you're more of an E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind person, or an alien and Independence Day person. The first one, not the second one. That's one of the worst movies ever made. I'm not exaggerating here. Independence Day 2, just terrible. Anyway, if you're a Christian, the reactions get, I think, more complex. It's possible that you have the exact same reaction as a non-Christian. You know, a reaction of, well, it's about time, and then fear or excitement or both. I think for many, if not most Christians, there would be a sense of incredulity. And then we'd probably see a large range of reactions. Flat-out denial, regardless of the evidence, possibly talk of conspiracy theories, government plots, deep fakes. There would be theories of this actually being a result of demonic activity to deceive people. And then for those that would accept the evidence as true, there would be those Christians that would flat out lose their faith, having been taught their whole life that there is no other life in all of creation. And then there are those that would be severely rattled, but would come out maintaining their faith. And there would be those that would say, well, okay, I guess God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to tell us everything. Maybe you can think of other reactions. I don't know. Maybe you'd react differently. If you would, send me an email or put a comment in there or something. I'm, I'm legitimately interested in knowing how people would think, you know, this scenario through and, and how you think you'd react. Now, personally, I'd be in the Christian worldview, and I would probably work through some aspects of denial and conspiracy. But if proven to be absolutely, irrefutably true... I think that I would land in the God is sovereign category. I'm assuming that's how I'd react. It's hard to know unless you actually deal with it. Now, the idea of aliens isn't exactly new, but it's definitely not an old theory. I mean, in the U.S., we can generally look back to Area 51, so we're looking at the 1950s. And, of course, you have a handful of outer space movies starting around then with a variety of different alien life forms and, remember, the Martians... But really, it kind of took off in the 1980s when the theories of Area 51 started to really gain steam. And then into the internet age up to now, the intrigue, the search for, the money spent on finding aliens has ramped up to a point that the existence of other life in the universe is now pretty much a foregone conclusion. And it's now just a matter of finding them. Or them finding us. In fact, a relatively recent poll found that 65% of Americans believe something else is out there. In November 2011, NASA launched the Curiosity rover. Well, I mean, launched a rocket with the rover on it. And then in August 2012, that rover landed on the surface of Mars. It was supposed to be a two-year mission, but it's still actually running around up there, snapping pictures and taking samples and, you know, just doing its thing. Now, as an engineer, I find that amazing. I mean, that's an amazing job of designing something. Fantastic. Anyway, the mission, according to NASA, is to, quote, investigate whether conditions have been favorable for microbial life and for preserving clues in the rocks about possible past life. Put simply, the mission is to find signs of alien life, current or past. Now, from BGR.com, the headline, NASA may have discovered evidence of ancient life on Mars. 
Okay, well, is this it? Is this the big one? The article says that the Curiosity rover has sent back information on the discovery of, quote, an interesting carbon signature that we didn't expect to see on Mars. Now, this is apparently a carbon type that's found on Earth. On Earth, this signature is most often associated with biological processes, whatever that means. And so there you have it. Well, I mean, not exactly. They also admitted that this carbon signature could be left behind from a major cosmic event that happened millions of years ago, of course, or it could be there because of, quote, an interaction between carbon dioxide and ultraviolet light. <sighs> okay, the author of the article stated that it's very easy to look at the data and just say that we found proof of alien life, but it's not quite that simple. No, it's, it's really not quite that simple because I guess I'd have to look at the other options of what this could be. You know, like UV light which we know that Mars gets plenty of, interacting with a gas that comprises 95% of the atmosphere of Mars, and that interaction creating this carbon signature. I kind of like defaulting to Occam's razor a little bit. The simplest answer is probably correct. As would be expected, this discovery has really got the science-talking guys excited. One is quoted as saying that this is, quote, tantalizing interesting. Yes, that, that was a quote, tantalizing interesting. While another says that they need to keep in mind that they're working on Mars, not on Earth, so they must be very careful interpreting the data. Well, I totally agree with this. I wish we'd see real care taken in interpreting data in everything we do in science, but that's not what we do anymore. We generally do a little bit of science, gather a little bit of data, make it fit what we want it to say, and then declare that the science is settled. So did this find signs of life, ancient or otherwise, as the headline suggests? No, no they didn't. Color me shocked, right? But as can be seen by the third theory of where this came from, a cosmic event millions of years ago, you can see what their angle is, why they must find life. To those so invested in finding life on other planets, it's not only considered proof of evolution, it's proof that there is no higher being in control. Just chemical interactions guided by random chance. Keep in mind, some of these professing Christians like Francis Collins, of whom I have some serious questions, they believe evolution was used by God, which is one of the most unbiblical, asinine beliefs I could think of. I mean, stop being lukewarm. Pick a side, Francis. And if you, if you, the listener, if you're someone with this belief, man, pick a side. Hanging out in the middle somewhere doesn't make any sense in either worldview. So no, they didn't find life on Mars. But this should bring up two questions for the Christian. You know, a thought exercise. One, did God create other life in the universe? And two, what happens to my faith if alien life is found? To answer the first question, our Bible doesn't tell us anything about other life in the universe. But then again, God has no obligation to tell us anything more than what we need to know. So saying that the Bible doesn't mention it, that's not the best argument. But there are some biblical arguments that need to be considered. Now, I'm just going to kind of pepper these out there and, and let you do the real legwork of putting the thought into this, but you need to think about it. So we need to have a couple premises to start with. First, the Bible is true. In other words, God wouldn't lie to us, either in commission or omission. 
And second, the Bible is written to man for our use, which means the Bible doesn't cover absolutely every second of every event or everything in the universe, as we don't need to be told everything. So here are a few things I want you to think about. First, God created the entire universe at one time. Genesis 1 tells us of this creation event, starting with nothing, creating the earth, all the stars, etc. in those first few days. So if any other planets with any other life were to be created, they would have to be created at this point. Now, one argument is that it would make no sense for God to create the whole of the universe and only put man on one planet. That makes an arrogant assumption, in my opinion, that says that this was created for us. But that's backwards. Everything was created for God, for his glory. And that's really it. He created exactly what brought him maximum glory. Our perception of what makes sense doesn't really enter into the equation. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Isaiah 43, 5-7 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, next, the Bible says that we are created in the image of God. Well, would that be the same with an alien life form? Did the alien have the breath of life breathed into it by God himself? And shouldn't we be looking for fully formed life forms, not microbes implying evolution? See, this starts to get very convoluted very fast for the Bible-believing Christian. Next, when Adam ate the fruit, sin entered the world and, in fact, entered all creation. Romans 8, starting with verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, Adam's sin corrupted the whole of creation. If life was on another planet, were they also held culpable? Were they corrupted? Or did they have their own sin event? If they had their own, how do you explain this verse? If they were held responsible, that means that God would have to have revealed us to them, and why not them to us? And How would it be fair of God to hold an entirely different planet of beings responsible for our planet's sin? And if it wouldn't apply to other life forms, what does whole creation actually mean? Next, we know that Christ died once for all. Does all only mean all on this planet, or was it for other planets as well? Or did Christ have to die again for all of them? Or is salvation just not a thing on the other planet? Maybe they weren't created with souls. Jesus came, lived, and died at a very specific time in our history. Were the other life forms at the same point of readiness? Did they have the same law for Christ to fulfill? 
a lot of questions here. And then finally, the earth, heavens, and all heavenly bodies will be destroyed by fire at the end and then remade. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So that means that the alien worlds will also be destroyed, regardless of if they ever sinned or ever heard of Jesus or if Jesus even died for them. Either that or we're being told something that isn't exactly true, and that has massive implications. I think we have a lot of theological issues that come up if alien life exists. A lot of places where some somewhat deceptive wordplay is used in our scriptures. I just have a hard time believing God would be a trickster like this. I have a few answers in Genesis articles linked in the notes that go into the idea of God creating life on other planets. Check them out. See what you think. So what about the accounts of Area 51, UFOs, alien encounters? Well, I would commend to you the Christian documentary entitled Alien Intrusion. It came out a couple years ago, and this tackles the subject of the existence of aliens, the plausibility of alien encounters, and it talks to people who had encounters. There were a few radio podcast personalities that I listened to that heavily promoted this movie. They were very interested in the conclusion this movie was going to make. They talked about it for a few months before the movie was released, but after the movie came out and the conclusion was not what they expected and not what they believed, they never mentioned it again. I believe that not only did they not like the conclusion, but they also didn't like the religious perspective concerning the possibility of aliens. Now, I'm not going to give anything away on this. The link is in the notes. Check out this movie. Excellent movie. But finally, what would it do to your faith if we actually found irrefutable proof of life on other planets? Whether that's microbes or actual animal or humanoid life forms, would this shipwreck your faith? Would this push you into the evolution camp? Would this cause you to renounce your faith? Well, I sure hope not. I think for me, this would cause me to fall back on what I know. I know the Bible is infallible and inerrant. It is God's protected word. Now, it would call into question for me some of the correct interpretations of certain words. For instance, the word that we interpret as world can actually mean in the Greek either the earth or the people on the earth. It can mean all or some, and it can have a literal or a figurative meaning. So in my viewpoint, we'd have to look at the context and reevaluate. But remember, this is all hypothetical. I also know that God is real. The creation displays his handiwork. There is no way all of this came about by random chance. I know that God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. He's under no obligation to tell us of all of his work. And even today, we know that he hasn't told us of everything he's done. And then I would have to say that the aliens would have been created for God's glory. I don't need to know any more than that. I don't need to know any more than he reveals to me. I would know that this is part of his perfect creation. And that's enough. Like I said, this is all hypothetical. Personally, I don't believe that we'll ever find alien life. I know evolution is just a silly theory. It actually requires more faith to believe that hogwash than it does to believe in an all-powerful God. You know, if you really look at what you have to accept by faith alone to believe evolution. So we're not going to find life because something out there is at some stage of evolution. And I believe that there are too many theological issues, even with the relatively limited amount of information we've been given by God 
to even open the door a crack to another creation of life out there somewhere. Now, as a Christian, do not fall for the tricks of the devil. I believe that Satan truly wants us to believe in aliens because that pushes people, Christians and non-Christians, toward the theory of evolution. And moving that direction is a big leap in the same direction of no longer believing the Bible, and that leads nowhere good. So what to do? Read your Bible, search the scriptures, pray for wisdom, and critically look at the types of claims that are made in articles and discoveries like these. Be prepared. What a simple statement. Those of you that were in the Boy Scouts will recognize that as the Boy Scout motto, but it didn't necessarily originate with them. That motto, although I'm sure there were countless people who uttered those words throughout history, was, shall we say, formalized by Robert Baden-Powell, an English soldier in 1907. Now, without diving into the history too deeply, you can search that out for yourself, Baden-Powell founded the Boy Scouts Association in Europe, which essentially got its start in 1907, formalized in 1910, and incorporated in 1912. There are various versions of the story, but essentially from what I could find, W.D. Boyce, an American newspaperman, was helped by a scout in London, and later got information about the scouts, and brought that info back to the States, and is now considered to be the founder of the Boy Scouts of America in 1910. Back to Baden-Powell. He coined the phrase, be prepared, of which the initials BP coincide with his initials on purpose, and made that the motto of the Scouts. When he was asked about this phrase, be prepared for what? His reply was, why for any old thing? And that's what he literally meant. Now, at that time, war was on the horizon, and Baden-Powell looked to these young men to be prepared to react quickly to an emergency, to do their part, to carry their weight. But not only that, not only times of war and emergency, but also they should be prepared to, quote, become productive citizens and strong leaders and to bring joy to other people, as well as to, quote, be ready in mind and body to meet with a strong heart whatever challenges await him. Robert Baden-Powell died in 1941 at the age of 83. Not bad. If he were able to look down and see young men today, to, to see young people today, <laughs> to see people today, I'd imagine he might die again. <laughs> but luckily for him, none of that is a possibility. So as much as I'd like to go into a rant about the snowflakery of our gather in a field and scream at the sky, or our my pronouns are jiggly and boogly generation, that's not what this review is about. I want to talk to you about being prepared. Did you know that our all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, oh, oof, that one actually... That's actually kind of true. Uh, government has a website at the address of http... No, I'm just kidding. Ready.gov. I think I had heard about this in the past, but as with names and dates, places, past events, future appointments, faces, promises made, past lessons learned, most of what I've read and what I had for breakfast this morning, I had forgotten about this site. Now, it actually looks like a solid concept of a site, and it might be a great site to visit. I really don't know. It appears to be a repository of ideas, recommendations, and tips on how to be prepared for all sorts of natural and, I guess, unnatural disasters and emergencies. It has advice on pre-planning for potential emergencies well before the news tells you that you have a few days to prepare 
or the air raid sirens start blaring, advice on what to do and what to expect in the midst of an emergency, and advice on what to do after the major impact of the emergency is over, as well as a lot of other information. The fact that this resides on the internet, which requires some sort of powered device and internet signal, may be a downfall as the world comes crashing down around you, but I digress. Nah, nah. How about they take some of that tax money they're pumping into things like uh, transgender monkey research and bind a preparedness manual and send out a copy to every household maybe every 10 years with the latest updates? Most would probably never look at it. Many would throw it away. But for the rest, to have a physical paper copy with some good information that may be beneficial to many if or when the need arises. Okay, back on track, Dan. With recent extracurricular activities in the land of Ukraine, and if you're not up to speed, let's let our Vice President Kamala Harris explain this for you. So Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So Basically, that's wrong, mm -hmm. and it goes against everything that we stand for. There are terms that we use. We say we respect the sovereignty, the territorial integrity of countries, right? Their independence. Russia has gone into Ukraine militarily, unprovoked, with no justification other than to exercise its power to take over another country. So essentially, that's what's at stake. And we as America are saying that's wrong. And we will stand with Ukraine in saying that that is wrong. That audio was taken from an interview on the Morning Hustle radio program with interviewer Head Crack. <laughs> so now you're up to speed. Side note. If you're a Democrat, this is literally who the people you voted for think of you. They believe that you are the most stupidest person in the world. Just saying. Anyway, with the recent events of big and little countries doing things that are basically wrong, and the current raising of both the Russian equivalent and our DEFCON alertness level, and Putin putting his nuclear weaponry on high alert, the concern that hasn't existed since the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s of possible vaporization of many and nuclear fallout and nuclear winter for the rest of us, has surfaced again. But don't worry, the emergency and disaster of nuclear explosion is covered in the ready.gov repository. And, as most things with the government does, this is where things get interesting. I don't have a specific article to review, but a week or so ago, stories started popping up about the government's advice for a nuclear explosion. If you go to the relevant site, which is ready.gov forward slash nuclear dash explosion, you'll find a pretty comprehensive and pretty wordy set of instructions and advice. So let me introduce the Wayback Machine, or web.archive.org, that somehow goes out across the entire internet and from time to time snaps a picture, essentially, of web pages so that you can go back into their archives to see what's changed on a particular site over time. If you go into their archives, the first instance of this specific page is from February 26th, 2018, and it appears to be not as wordy. So, being curious, I copied the actual text of the instructions, ignoring all of the links found at the end, etc., etc., from both the original archived and the latest page and pasted them into Word. I then changed all the text to the same font and size and 
Yeah, sure enough. The latest version has nearly 700 more words, which is nearly double of the original, and one and a half more pages of text. Now, in my career, I've written a lot of procedures, and despite my typical long-windedness, <laughs> no comments, one of the keys to procedure writing, especially emergency procedures, is to be concise, clear, and to the point, giving only the most pertinent information needed. What you don't want to do is bog down the individual that needs the information right now to have to work his way through a bunch of nonsense while his world is burning down. Think of it like this. What do you do if you're on fire? Stop, drop, and roll. Not stop. The purpose of stopping is so that when you proceed further into the procedure, you will be able to complete those steps adequately and without added danger. Additionally, you don't want to risk injury to others by running into them while on fire. Also, you... Okay, you get the point, right? Concise, clear, to the point, with only the needed information. But... Just because a procedure is longer doesn't mean it's necessarily worse. We have to look at what the content of the new procedure has versus the old. Now, each page has the same headers. Nuclear explosion, get inside, stay inside, stay tuned, what to do now, prepare, or on the current one, prepare now, what to do during, survive, or currently survive during, and what to do after, be safe, or currently be safe after, and hazards related to nuclear explosions. Out of these sections, between 2018 and today, the sections of nuclear explosion, stay tuned, and hazards related to nuclear explosions are identical. For all other sections, everything that was in the 2018 standard is still contained in the current one with lengthy additions. So what are all these vital, crucial 700 words that we need to read, which doesn't seem like a lot until you're in the midst of an emergency? What critical information are they relaying to us that if not imparted to us, we may never survive a nuclear explosion? Without this information, will we survive nuclear winter? Why won't he just tell us what's going on here? Tune in next time when... No, I'm just kidding. All of these words have to do with the vitally important information for nuclear explosion survival regarding, say it with me, uh, COVID-19. Yep, that's it. Because in the midst of nuclear fallout, you're thinking... Does hand sanitizer protect me from the radioactive particles falling on my very person? And the answer, as they actually address this, is no. No, it does not. All right, let's take a look at what they say, and then I want to introduce you to a word you may or may not be familiar with. So, four times we're told to, quote, avoid touching our eyes, nose, and mouth if possible. We should use this tip when removing contaminated clothing and cleaning our skin, and it gets better, and when we're lying face down outside to protect ourselves from the nuclear blast. Now, it seems to me that protecting your face or, or washing your face would be of vital importance, more so than not touching your face, because you have a lot of important things, you know, in the, uh, in the facial region that you, you want to take care of. Now, twice we're told that hand sanitizer does not protect against fallout, you know, nuclear fallout, and that we shouldn't use disinfectant wipes on our skin, which makes me wonder if I'm Clorox wiping things wrong at the house when I do general household cleaning. Well, what is it doing to my skin? And where's the warning not to inject bleach directly into my bloodstream? 
Four times, while we're indoors sheltering in place from the, you know, the nuclear blast, we're told to stay at least six feet away from people who aren't members of our immediate household and wear a flipping mask for crying out loud, Do you want Grandma to die? But of course, children under two and those that have breathing problems don't have to mask up, unless there are loving, woke liberals in the same shelter who are shaming them into it by screaming in their face and spitting on them. And that last bit is maybe more implied rather than stated. Twice we're told that due to COVID-19 restrictions, some of the public shelters and other places you think would be open may not be open. So this is a prepare ahead kind of thing. Okay, that's actually generally useful. Know where you'd go, but, but then they add that you probably should read the CDC's guidelines for going to a public disaster shelter during the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you go to the public shelter, you know, full of filthy virus-laden humanity, you probably want to bring hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol and cleaning materials and not one, but two masks per person. Then you'll be safe from the nuclear explosion. Now, they do give some good general advice, things like preparing in advance, buy things you may need to survive multiple days, at least three, and more if possible. But then they go into the fact that you should have soap, hand sanitizer, disinfecting wipes, and household cleaning products so you can wipe down surfaces you touch regularly. You know, because during a nuclear holocaust, you definitely want to wipe up any potential for viral transmission. That's the last thing you need, is to, to catch a cold. They do suggest, and I absolutely agree with this, not for the products they're saying, but for things like food and water and medicine, you know, essential things, stock up ahead of time. Slowly build up reasonable stockpiles of supplies that can last you for some period of time. They say between shopping trips, and I'd say until some sort of supply chain or other form of assistance is reestablished, I don't know if shopping trips is really going to be the correct term we're going to use during a nuclear explosion. They say to build up some extra, if you can, in order to help others. I totally agree with that. And they say to avoid the WIC labeled products so that those that use WIC can buy those. Well, I mean, look, stock up on essentials and supplies. I think if we're heading for nuclear war, I just think that there's some sort of things, some kind of things that go out the window. Lastly, my favorite parts. If you're sick or injured, in the original standard, it said this, quote, Listen for instructions on how and where to get medical attention when authorities tell you it is safe to exit. Okay, clear, concise, to the point, nice. We now have two additional paragraphs of instructions if you're sick or injured. Please indulge me as I read these to you. The first one, quote, if you are sick and need medical attention, contact your health care provider for instructions. If you are at a public shelter, immediately notify the staff at that facility so they can call a local hospital or clinic. If you're experiencing a medical emergency, call 911 and let the operator know if you have or think you might have COVID-19. If you can, put on a mask before help arrives. Okay, so you're in the blast radius or in the fallout zone you know, because you're in apparently a shelter, you're sick or injured, and you're supposed to call your healthcare provider? What, because they're, what, open for business as usual? In the fallout or blast zone? I, what? And definitely, as you're laying there, you know, sick or injured, 
for the love of all that's holy, put on a mask. Think of others. Next paragraph. Quote, Engage virtually with your community through video and phone calls. Know that it's normal to feel anxious or stressed. Take care of your body and talk to someone if you are feeling upset. Many people may already feel fear and anxiety about the coronavirus 2019 or COVID-19. The threat of a nuclear explosion can add additional stress. Follow CDC guidance for managing stress during a traumatic event and managing stress during COVID-19. Alright. Now, this is still under the theory that you survived a nuclear blast or that you're in the fallout zone. They want you to Zoom call others? Really? Is this because your laptop or cell phone and the internet service, that's all going to be just working all hunky-dory? Okay. And and yes, I'd agree that it's normal to feel anxious or stressed. Either you're dealing with nuclear winter, or you've seen a mushroom cloud rise up from across the country somewhere. You may be a little stressed in either scenario. Yeah, sure, I get it. If you feel upset, talk to someone. Not a bad idea. But realize, you're gonna have to suck it up. Everyone's a bit stressed. Nobody needs to have you snowflake out on them, okay? Finally, as as for people feeling anxiety from COVID... And, and nuclear threats or explosions may just make that worse. I, I kind of think maybe that's backwards. I, I mean, if we're under the threat of nuclear war, maybe nobody, out of the small remaining percentage, cares about a bad cold virus anymore. Can we agree that this is, I don't know, ludicrous? I mean, who in their infinite wisdom thought that updating the nuclear explosion guidance with COVID-19 garbage was a good idea? This isn't even me going into masks about how, yeah, it's as effective against nuclear fallout as it is against a virus. You know, not at all. And how the six feet rule is a joke. All that is is a number that was given out to make people feel like they they, they did something. Real spittle or snot droplets don't go that far. Not the big ones. Sneezes have smaller droplets that go farther than that. And airborne viruses can go tens upon tens of feet and float in the air for days. So this is all stupid. It's a bunch of motion and action that results in nothing. And with the actual statistics regarding illness and death actually from COVID, it's pointless to worry about it anyway, especially when faced with actual nuclear war. The word I want to introduce you to is psychosis. Psychosis. This is defined as, quote, an acute or chronic mental state marked by loss of contact with reality. The fear of COVID has actually become a psychosis for a large percentage of the country and the world. The fear is more of a pandemic reaching many more people with more severe lasting effects than the virus ever could have hoped to do. To be discussing nuclear war, but tell people to be concerned with masking and six feet of distance between households? is the very definition of psychotic. This is quite clearly a loss of touch with reality. So they've taken a good document, made stupid changes, made it more cumbersome and complicated. This is the opposite of what they should have done. When further diving into the Wayback Machine, we find that they made that update between November 8th and November 11th of 2020, nearly one and a half years ago. And when comparing the initial changes to today's information, it hasn't been touched since, regardless of the quite clearly changed circumstances 
change directives, additional information regarding COVID, and on and on. Now, more than in even November of 2020, this added guidance is useless. It does nothing but clog up the procedures and recommendations, making it harder for people to comb through to find what they actually need. As a procedure writer, as someone that's been studying this COVID thing for two years now, and as an engineer, this kind of thing annoys me to no end. I, I know, I know. You probably couldn't tell. I, I'm pretty good at hiding that. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. Use the guidance, the useful parts. From a biblical perspective, as that's where I like to at least wind up, prepare. Now, I know some will say the Bible says not to worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. Yes, that's true. But put back into context, this is about faith in self versus faith in God. There is nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with having some extra food on the shelf. But if your strength comes from your own self and your preparedness, if you're idolizing your stockpiles and building bigger barns to hold all of your stuff, that's where the problems happen. Remember, the Bible also tells us that those that don't provide for their family have denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This, in context, is talking about the destitute widow. The husband died without making plans to provide for his widow after he was gone. That takes preparation and planning. You don't need to be a prepper, but look at the times, look at your responsibilities, and plan accordingly. And as the Bible also tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. You may not be able to sustain your friends and neighbors through an emergency. That seems a little unreasonable in my opinion, especially since they should be planning ahead as well. But to be a source of help if needed, you can do that. We should try to do that. Whether that's money or food, gas, or even just encouragement, whatever you can do, whatever you can spare while still taking care of your family, you should be prepared to do. Now, I know there's a lot of disagreement amongst Christians as to this topic, and that's fine. This is not a core doctrine. There is room for disagreement. As for me, this is how I function. I'm far from a prepper, but I am someone that feels I should do what I need to do in order to plan for the potential future, knowing that my life may be required of me at any moment. But from my perspective of now, I need to take care of my child. My parents come next. My sister and her family are after them. And then if I can, I will help friends and neighbors as I can, how I can. And my encouragement to you is to stay informed, stay awake, stay in the word. Pray about what you should do now to prepare for later. And let the Holy Spirit, your conscience, let that guide you. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.